Welcome to the Girlfriend God Podcast, a podcast in search of and in service to the Divine Feminine, bringing you an equal mix of academic research and emotional spiritual experience. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to like and subscribe and leave a comment. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with your friends, rate and review it. If you're listening on a streaming platform, follow on social media on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. Now, let's get in the flow. Okay. Welcome to the Girlfriend Guide. Today is my very first panel episode. Going to do more of these this season, and I'm pretty excited about it. I've been wanting to do this for a while. So today, I've got two guests with me, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves to the listeners rather than them just sitting there while I read their bios. We've got Monette Chilson, who's been on the show before, and Rana Dietrich. Why don't I let them go ahead and introduce themselves Uh Monette, why don't you go first? Sure. So I'm Monette Chilson, and I am an author, but I'm also an excavator of our sacred feminine history. I love finding the stories beneath the stories, and I run an online community called Woman Spirit Reclamation, and we have classes and gatherings and circles and things like that um, to support women in their awakening remembering of their own self-sovereignty. Nice. My name is Rana Dietrich, and I am a coach and a spiritual director, also an author. And uh, my work has predominantly been that of helping women untangle themselves from the stories they've been told, which then convert themselves to the stories that they tell themselves and really trying to peel back the layers of patriarchy and cultural oppression and all of the things that get in the mix of how we see and understand ourselves and invite a sovereign story, one that we write on our own that is ours to pen and ours to live. Thank you. I'm excited that you are both here. Thank you for being my guinea pigs for the panel episode. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk about the goddess in the Bible. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about is, before we get actually into the pages of the Bible itself, one of the things that I run into the most, and I wanted each of you to kind of let me know if this is something that you've run into or not. I'm often struck by, as I've often complained about on this show, right? Like because of where I live, like, you know, I run into people here who seem to not understand that there is history that, it, you know, there's history before 1776 and there are other mythologies besides Greco-Roman. Um, how few people realize that there are so many other versions of the Bible besides the King James version. Do either of you run into that? Like, well, I, I don't so much anymore. I mean, I think, um, <laughs> first and foremost, cause I hardly ever talk to anyone anymore who is, that ca caught um i probably spend more time talking to people that have been caught and have tried to work their way out of it which right. has certainly been my own story um you know and this is me being slightly snarky but probably the people that are still connected to the king james bible are not mine they're probably not my people we're probably going to have way more arguments than just the translation in and of itself yeah i would <laughs> I would say um, it's kind of related to what you ask, but the idea of like, yes, there are other versions, but the idea of placing the myths of the Bible in the same mythic container as all of the other ones, they're not like some 
thing that came down from God, like getting people to see them as a mythology, a choice of mythology. I think that is powerful. And even people who are somewhere on the process of deconstructing, that's a deep uh, idea that gets lodged in us, getting them to like un take it off the pedestal mm -hmm. and bring it down and look at it as a myth is super powerful. And really right. hard. Really it's hard. Really hard. It's just like in our chemistry somehow that that's somehow sacrilegious or. Yes. Um, yeah. It's really difficult to make that break. Well, and I also, as a librarian, I try and get people to look at the Bible as um, both as a book, right? Um, but more than that, as an, as an archivist, it, it, as a historical text, mm -hmm. right? Being preserved for the reasons that, that we preserve it. And they don't, people don't want to hear that. And, and I too, Ronna, I, you know, I, these are not my people either. But as everyone at this stage is well aware, I don't have my people here where I live. Mm -hmm. So these are the people that I am surrounded by, but they are not my people. <laughs> yeah, I get that. It's just a circumstance yeah. Of, yeah. of my geographic location. Mm -hmm. Although I did discover I have a person down the street uh, who I've known for many years, not well, and obviously not well enough to know that she was a follower of the goddess. So I was excited to find that out the other day, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, I want to digress for just a minute to ask either one of you, if you know, because you're both really smart people, and I know that you know a lot about a lot of things. Why are there Bibles in hotel nights? <laughs> Do either of you know why that is? That's yeah, an interesting I, thing know. that we should probably go Google when we're done with this. I think so. I mean, the Gideons put them there, but I don't know why. Like, I'm sure it was a like a missionary outreach initiative oh. by the Gideons, right? Like, the, they they felt like this rather than. I mean, I'm sure the Gideons are overseas as well. But you look at other missionary organization movements that have gone away from the United States to other places to evangelize. This was a method that I'm sure they discerned would be of value. And it probably happened at a time where it was just the acceptable text. Like nobody was really thinking hard about whether this would be offensive to anyone or right. Like it just wasn't even considered. Of course, everybody would want that. And if you're going to pay to put it in our hotel room drawers, we'll take them. Yeah. I think it's that mentality. Um, I mean, you touched on it, it's the missionary mentality. Like yeah. I must reach out to you. This is a kind thing I am doing. Mm -hmm. um, I have an aunt who is, well, I'm from Texas. So bless her heart. Um, she is, um, she really thinks that it is her duty to tell, like to comment. And, and if you ever see her um, commenting on Instagram and in my post, she'll go on and write a little mini sermon. And she thinks that's kind and loving. And I have told her kindly that when we love someone, we don't try to change them. We accept and respect their beliefs. So I'm, you know, we're always like pushing back that missionary evangelism mentality from mm -hmm. it comes at us, you know, mm -hmm. in the hotel room drawer from our aunt, from wherever. Mm -hmm. And it really like to go to a lot of the work that I think you're doing, Kelly, it really is a an archive. It's a piece in the larger arc of the patriarchy and capitalism. And, you know, the, 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 because we are so fabulous as white um, colonialists, how right. generous of us to spread the wealth of all that we know on your behalf. So you too can be saved. Um, yes. You know, I mean, I mean, I, and that's, I'm being facetious in my language, but I've lived in that world, like for the, you know, the first four decades, five, almost five decades of my life. So I get where it comes from, from a critique perspective. I'm like, it's just one more manifestation that holds on, like that's so hard to get it all out of our system. 
even though I joke about it because I do live here as a, you know, as a person who does try and, you know, live what I, what I preach as a priestess, sometimes that's difficult for me. Like not that long ago, I was at a, a doctor's appointment and, and I needed a driver. So Cindy came with me and there was a woman that came in with her husband to the spine pain clinic where I had my appointment. And again, as a, she really believes that this is her being of service to her community, handing out these little cloth handmade crosses to everyone in the waiting room. Okay. Not really that far out of left field for here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when we were done, Cindy said, she said, I wanted to throw this thing at her and I can't believe you didn't say anything. And I said, honey, I didn't say anything because it obviously brought this woman so much joy to hand these things out. And she said, but by not saying anything, didn't you compromise your beliefs? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, I kind of did. You know what I mean? So what do I do in those situations where I want to be gracious and allow people to have their own beliefs? And it did obviously bring her a lot of joy. But at the same time, you know what I mean? Like I didn't have the, I don't know, I didn't have the right words to say. I think Without me, criticism from all the other Christians she handed the process to. Yeah, yeah, I think for me, Kelly, like over the years, that's one of the things that I've, I, especially from a writing and an author's perspective, I've had to pick and choose my arguments right. where I'm willing to dive in and where I'm not. And in a context like that, there is really a part of me that is grateful that people do have a system of beliefs that serves them. Like right. I, I'm not you know, I may not disagree, I may not agree with it anymore for me, uh, or even for the planet on some level. But at the same time, I can respect, I mean, my mom is a great example. Like, she's a very devout, faithful believer. And she and I have lots of discussions about, you know, kind of where my own theology has evolved or lack of theology, as the case might be, over the years. But that doesn't mean I don't respect the fact that she still holds fast to what it is that she believes and it brings her meaning. So I, I can let that kind of thing go and be grateful that somebody's willing to take those kinds of risks. I wouldn't be handing out anything, no matter how firmly I believe what I do. So, yeah. Okay. Well, moving on. Sorry, that was kind of a side tangent, <laughs> but I was just wondering about the Bibles and the, and whenever I hear the, Gideon's Bible, I just think there's a line in a, in a Jethro Tull song, uh, the locomotive breath, there's a line about Gideon's Bible, where he says he picks up Gideon's Bible, opens that page one, and that's all I hear when somebody says Gideon's Bible, but <laughs> again, that is neither here nor there. So, most people are familiar with Asherah, so I want to save that till last. So let's start with the con with Shekinah and Sophia, because my understanding of Shekinah and Sophia isn't actually a goddess per se, or is she? And where does that fall in the Bible? I have some sources. Let me open my web page. So Sophia. Shekinah has been known as God at the beginning. And I have a quote, I have a quote somewhere that God and Shekinah founded. Where is it? Of course, now I can't find it. <laughs> There's some quote about how God and Sophia. Okay, in some Christian traditions, Sophia is the personification of either divine wisdom 
that takes female form. She is mentioned in the first chapter of the book of Proverbs. So I've got, I've Go got, I've got two here. I've got Wisdom of Solomon. Um, this is the beginning and the end of my Sophia book. I closed with the Proverbs. I opened with the, um, from the Wisdom of Solomon, and I used the inclusive Bible translation. So I don't know, just for like opening discussion, if you want me to read either one sure. of those, because they give a nice poetic picture. I'm just going to do the Wisdom of Solomon. Um, she is the light that shines forth from everlasting light, the flawless member of the the flawless mirror of the dynamism of God and the perfect image of the Holy One's goodness. Though alone of her kind, she can do all things. Though unchanging, she renews all things. Generation after generation, she enters into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves the one who finds a home in wisdom, or Sophia, she is more beautiful than the sky and more magnificent than all the stars in the sky. And I, I actually, both, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think in both these examples of Sophia and um, Shakina or Shekinah, however we say those, like in the, in the Christian tradition or in the, tr in the tradition itself, these words are interspersed as definitions or other names for the divine. They're not seen as a feminine god or the goddess. They, like Shekinah, is a word that that names God's glory, the light and the radiance of, of the divine. And so it's very, I mean, I think it's more recent or maybe predates Christianity for sure, in which we saw these words as actual names for a different embodiment of the divine or the fe the feminine embodiment of the divine. A lot of people would just argue that both of those terms, though they're present in some way within the Hebrew language, not the Greek, well, Greek is where Sophia would come from, but exactly. still this embodiment of wisdom, yeah. um, just as another name. It's like a, like a, an adjective or a descriptor. Right. Um, and so, it's an interesting process to pull those apart and to begin to, to, well, not, I mean, for some people it's beginning to consider those as actual form or ways of understanding the divine through the feminine lens. Yes. Right. I, I actually, I, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I found this Proverbs uh, quote that I was looking for which is the, the, the biblical creation story in Proverbs that includes Shekinah, where she is said to be the foundation of the world and that she established the heavens and broke open the depths. Her ways of pleasantness, her ways, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, those who hold fast and are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding. He established the heavens by his knowledge. The deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. And that's Proverbs 317 through 20. That's the, mm -hmm. which is the ESV, which version is, I don't know what the version. English standard version, probably. English standard version, okay. So, I mean, that's pretty, I mean, especially with the tree of life. It's beautiful. That's a different Proverbs quote than mm -hmm. I had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, even in Genesis 1, there is a statement that says um, that God created humankind in their image. Right. And when we go back to the Hebrew and we look at the etymology of the words and the understanding of them before the King James Version was written and kind of took over everything in terms of our, our contemporary understanding of this text, 
there is no gender that was assigned to the divine. There wasn't even, I was just reading a midrash the other day where there was not even gender assigned to even Adam in, in the Hebrew, in the core, the original language. It's our application back on top of these texts that we now take as gospel, which is a bizarre turn of phrase given what we're talking about. But, um, that's the mess that we get ourselves into is to go back to your idea of the King James Kelly, right? Like we think that this is poured in concrete, that this right. is the way that it is. But what we don't ever do the hard work of, of considering is that we've done the interpretation of all of that really within the last few hundred years um, where we've cemented these ideas of gender so profoundly in the text, but they're just not there. I mean, that's the beauty for me when I've gone back and looked at these texts, and these stories, there's so much freedom to interpret them so much differently if we're willing to go back to the original language and deconstruct all of this ridiculousness from modernism forward. Right. Because without that gender, because I was also reading um, about how, let's see if I can find it, when, when this person, who's the author here, Edward Durand, wrote this article in a website called The Braided Way. And he says, when Jesus said, honor your father and mother, he wasn't talking about Joseph and Mary. And when they came to him and someone told him his parents were here, he denied it, saying they were not his parents. He was talking about honoring the heavenly father and mother. Mm -hmm. The Wycliffe Bible which was the first complete English Bible, which predates the King James Bible by centuries. In Matthew's Gospel, 1919, Jesus says, Worship thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Mark's Gospel says, in Matthew 15, 16, Jesus says, He hath not worshipped his father or his mother, and ye have made the commandment of God void for your tradition. So I, I think he's right. I don't think they're talking about their birth parents. And in, wait, there's one other thing. Uh, in Paul, in his letter to the Galatians in the Wycliffe Bible, he said, Jerusalem that above is free, which is our mother. And Paul said in his letter to the Colossians, the kingdom of God is within you, in whom are hid the treasures of Sophia and Gnosis. And then it goes back to the whole Sophia thing. I found all kinds of stuff this morning. <laughs> oh yeah, I was trying to, um, as I was thinking about this, think about the specific tools or techniques that are used to hide or um, like undo the power of the goddess in the Bible. And I think we've touched on some of them. I think right. um, switching proper nouns to common words. That is a big one that we just talked about. And I think mistranslations, like just one letter. And, you know, like Ron was just talking about the gent, there's so many lost in translation moments. And then yes. if those fail, then they just like switch it up and like demonize and take like Eve's story or Lilith's story. Um, so I think it's the mistranslation, the demoting the proper nouns and um, the demonization. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if I were to, I, I agree with you on the demonization thing, when we look at the history of patriarchy and the harm of women and all those kinds of things, I think the, the gracious part of me when I can be there um, has to acknowledge the oral tradition of that text. And I think about this through the lens of storytelling, like when, when we recognize that those stories were told for thousands of years hundreds for sure before they were ever written down, but probably even longer than that. You know, think about any story that we tell. It changes every time we tell it. 
a little bit based on who it is that we're talking to. We speak to our audience. We think about who's in front of us, who's listening, what matters in terms of what I say right now. And so when we recognize all the cultural influences and geographic influences and all of the things that would have been taking place as that story, those stories continue to evolve over time. It's not that shocking that, that it's so many things have been lost along the way. And we can't ever go back to them. They don't exist. We, I mean, I think Mary Magdalene's gospel is a really interesting example of this, right? Because it shows up much later and crashes into all of the oral and written tradition that has become, again, poured in concrete. And then people are like, what the hell? Like, what's this? This doesn't work for us because it, it's so dissonant, but is yet another example of how these stories were told in such radically different ways, depending on who was telling them. Sorry, I had to... I had to mute you. I had some. I had some feedback. Okay, it's okay. Um, I was gonna, if I could just go back to the, um, those gendered terms for a minute, because I was just reading yesterday or the day before about in Hebrew, the Eloah and Elohim, or Elohim, Eloha. I can't speak. Hebrew very well, but that that was a manipulated term because Elohim is plural, really, from both masculine and feminine, but there are some pre-Bible texts that use the word Eloah, which is the feminine word, which translated in Hebrew means goddess. Mm -hmm. That, is that you right? know, I'm, I, I hate to keep talking, Monette, because you have so many interesting things to say. Um, but I think that's another, when you think about Western, the Western influence, Western Christianity, which pretty much dominates the world in so many sad and sorry ways, um, our language isn't gendered. We don't, it's not like Spanish or Italian or French that has masculine and feminine applied to the nouns that understand the complexity of the language we've taken we've stripped all of that out so it's not again it's it's disappointing and it's harmful and it's really hard to reestablish new ground to stand on but it's also understandable what how we've sanitized and what's the word i want just kind of chopped up this text with english which is a really choppy, non-feminine, it's, it's not a beautiful language. It doesn't allow for the complexity that other languages naturally do, which Hebrew, especially, way more than Greek. I mean, Hebrew is a beautiful language that's poetry, basically, but that's not what we've done with it as we've translated that text over the centuries. I was going to let you talk for a while. <laughs> I, I was going to say after Rhonda's last, um, when she shared about, you know, how things change. And I had that vision of like, what's that telephone game we play where you say something to someone. That's what it is. The telephone game. Yeah. Right. Like, and it changes, but I was going to say that I'm not as gracious as you are. <laughs> as I don't think it was like a, oops, I missed a word. Like I see these stumps. Oh, and I had this beautiful, um, y'all, I'm sure y'all read it, but I'm going to summarize it really shortly. When I was in Scotland, um, this cave that was known by everyone, the librarians, the local, you know, historians as the cave of St. Philan. And I was like, interesting, but it's not like resonating that way. And so I did this research and there was like zero like actual evidence, like someone in the 1800s said St. Philan was there in, you know, 700, whatever. And he wrote in his, his arm glowed and he wrote in the cave in this lovely, weird story. And um, I got to connect with a scholar there. I read his work. I went to a local gathering, did all this research. 
And like the only actual connection was to Mary Magdalene, like in the late 1400s, early 1500s on the charters of the town. That cave was called the Spring of Mary Magdalene and boom, the Reformation. Yeah. And, you know, the Protestant church is like, oh, no, 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 we're not venerating like saints, especially not Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. and, um, then all of a sudden the charters said a certain spring like that quickly. So mm -hmm. I'm like, that wasn't like a oopsie left that off. No. No. It was like, no, there are certain political um, and cultural forces at work that shape the story in a way. For that's sure. Yeah. And I, I'm, I don't, I totally agree with you. I think early on, yeah. way back, yes. it was just people telling the story without any ill will, any thought of it one way or the other. But as you look at the cultural movement of the growth of patriarchy, the power of men, the I, Darwin, the idea, all of these ideas that started turning around, it's not at all shocking that there were big decisions that were made about which stories made it in, which texts were allowed. And that was a long time ago, back at the, like the Council of Nicaea, when they decided which texts would be included. Of course, women weren't going to be part of that. And, you know, this is one of the things I find so fascinating with the text in and of itself, and I write about this, like, it's shocking to me that a number of the stories that I work with made it in in the first place, because they are not, uh, what's the word I want, complementary of men. Uh, there, there's so many of them in there that when I look at them through that lens, I'm like, I wonder why they left this one in. I wonder why they let this one stand. Why did they allow in the book of Esther, or, you know, I mean, I could go on and on, like they could have easily done away with those, especially a book like Song of Solomon, that's totally confusing, and or book of Revelation, people don't understand what that's about. You know, so there's a part of me that says there's something bigger and more powerful that is present, not just in this text, but in a general sense, that somehow, weirdly, in some wacky and profoundly sacred feminine way allowed some of these stories and texts to even be in there because they're powerful and very dissonant from the party line. If we right. read them that way. Right. Right. Before there were those young, tired of being repressed, flamboyant queer priests who were like, honey, not on my watch, that's staying in when they were talking, when they were <laughs> scribes, <laughs> they were copying the tags. Yeah. Tired of them putting down my sisters. I can yeah. see that. <laughs> I see that. Um, or us, right? Or the, well, they already got rid of us. Um, so, Annette, oh, you said something that sparked me to talk about something else, and now I can't remember what it was. Oh, so something else that I wanted to talk about, and you hit upon it. So Mary, right, and we talk about how things have been stolen and all of that. So, you know, we did an episode last season about the Virgin Mary that I did with Carla and Kendall in the UK about the Virgin Mary and how the Virgin Mary is kind of a feeling of a bunch of other goddesses that preceded Christianity and how Mary is just this kind of made up amalgamation combined with Mary Magdalene who wasn't acceptable. So they made, so Pope Gregory, who I blame for everything in the 400s, you know, bastardized her and made her the dirty, unlikable, unlovable prostitute, and then as her opposite, created the Virgin Mary. So the Virgin Mary is very goddess-like in that, first of all, I cannot tell you how along my journey with this podcast, how many goddess-worshipping women I have met who grew up Catholic 
who all loved the Virgin Mary as children because we could not relate to any other part of the church that we were brought to as children. But we saw Mother Mary and we were like, <laughs> you know, um, which is a cultural phenomenon in and of itself. But so Mary, uh, who in that episode we compared mostly to, there's a lot of Virgin Mary imagery that uh, is directly related to Ishtar and Inanna. You know, Ishtar, Inanna, same goddess, depends on which tradition or which part of the world you're talking about in Mesopotamia. And a lot of the symbology, blue and white and doves, all associated with Inanna. I discovered this morning that there is a lot of pushback from Catholicism about people who are a little too enthusiastic about Mary. So I'm going to read you this thing that I found this morning, which I found both disturbing, but also mildly entertaining <laughs> um, about this, this, this guy, his name, I don't know what his name is, but it came from something called Forerunner Commentary on a website called BibleTools.org. Oh, Richard T. You should know better than to read that one from the get-go, Kelly. Oh, I know. Was, <laughs> I found the same one, was, Kelly, when I was... Oh, by I Richard T. Rittenbaum from The Woman Atop the Beast. <laughs> okay. Well, let's share it with Rana, shall we? Yes, go for it. Maybe the most blatant idol tree in Roman Catholicism is their adoration of Mary, the mother of Christ. Again, mother, everybody knows there's a connection between mother and goddess. On the basis of our scripture, Catholic theologians have built a major tenet of their faith I'm going to skip the quotation. With this, they elevate her nearly to a goddess, if not, in fact, pray to her incessantly, claim to see her in visions and hear her in dreams and trances and worship statues of her in their churches and cathedral. Two quotations from supposed saints of Catholicism will suffice to illustrate how far Mary worship goes. The first one, there is no one, O oh, most holy Mary, who can be saved or redeemed but through thee. That's from St. Germanius, quoted from St. Alphonsus de Liguri, The Glories of Mary, published in 1931. And as we have access to the Eternal Father only through Jesus Christ, so we have access to Jesus Christ only through Mary. By thee we have access to the Son, O blessed finder of grace, bearer of life, and mother of salvation. I don't know, that does sound like goddess worship to me. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think that's important to note there is, and I'm sure that the person who you're quoting, the Richard, whatever his name is, is looking at the Catholic Church through an evangelical lens right? The Catholic Church doesn't have a question about the veneration of Mary. The Catholic Church is fine with the understanding of Mary. Now, we may want to take it further than that. We may want to, we, we don't like the fact that the Catholic Church won't ordain women, like that you know, there's no female pre, like there's all kinds of problems. I'm not suggesting that the Catholic Church is further down the line in any way. But evangelicalism, the division from the Protestant Reformation is where this critique of Mary came. Uh, because it was a way to divide Protestants from Catholics. And I grew up hearing exactly what that guy said. I, I remember hearing that. Like, this is the problem with Catholics is that they worship Mary. And I remember going, whoa, that's weird. What's that about? Like, you know, when I was a kid, like a young girl, like there was no part of me that understood that as wise. That was, that was talked to me as though that was a failing right? Like, we've got the better way. That's problematic. You don't want to worship Mary. Like, why would you do that? 
you have to worship God and Jesus. Like, that's not okay. And it took me a long time to to break that down and go, okay, that's just wackadoo, right? And it took me, like, going to seminary and understanding the history of Christianity and that everything was Catholic before it was Protestant, evangelical, even further out on the spectrum by, by all, if we keep going. Um and so when I hear those quotes, I think this is a person that is not looking at the broader history of the text, of the pr- progression of denominations and religious thinking, but is in black and white categories of right and wrong, evangelical or Protestant versus Catholic. It's, it's super small, <laughs> really small. Because, and I say this being having been raised Catholic, now I wasn't raised in a strict Catholic home, um, but we did go to church every Sunday. I mean, my parents were what my mother calls buffet Catholics, take, take what you need and leave the rest, right? Which was fine for me. I mean, um, I mean, it wasn't fine. Uh, I mean, I was scarred by the messaging I got from the Catholic church about being a homosexual and all that. But I didn't get that messaging at home from my parents. I got it from, you know, the church proper. Um, but here's the thing. How horrified would Catholics be if they knew that they were such a training ground for future goddess worshipers and witches? A lot of witches I know grew up Catholic. And we loved Catholicism because it's so ritualistic it's so ritual heavy with the robes and the stand sit meal and candles and incense and we love that shit (laughs) so Mm -hmm. what do you think they would do if they knew that they were just a training ground for goddess worshipers and witches (laughs) well i think it to me it goes back further right like before that's probably what it was anyway before right like when these stories began to be told there was goddess worship there this these were the rituals that were part of the culture and so even then the stories were told in ways that embraced what the the that time period's understanding was of ritual and religion and women and honoring the goddess and it's we're the ones over time and really a very small window of time when you think about it that have extrapolated all of that out and made it bad and evil and wrong. It's really just a joke, Hunter. (laughs) Yeah, I know that. And everybody that that knows that is even remotely knowledgeable about these things knows that all the Christian holidays are really pagan holidays and sometimes I wonder if Mary was created to appeal to women, to get women in the doors of the, the church. Mm. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I... Never know. Yeah. Manette, you just look disgusted. <laughs> oh, I'm not disgusted. I'm th- I'm trying to like hold on to like nuggets of what each of you have said that I think you know, are deepening this conversation. And I was thinking about um, how Rana pointed out that um, the way we're indoctrinated, like even in a Protestant church, how it seems like, of course, that's so weird that they do it that way. That's so weird that the Catholics include Mary. And then I'm thinking about in the Bible, how any hint or sniff of the goddess is like, oh, those pagan, those idol worshipers. And I always thought in my mind as a kid, oh gosh, that's creepy. And now I'm like, that's the bomb. Like, that's the thing. Um, You know, the groves and all the things that would feel most sacred to me now, we were indoctrinated by the Bible and religion and the way it was translated, mistranslated, framed, all of that to think, oh, thank goodness they got rid of those. And now it like hurts my heart. I'm like, oh my gosh, like they burned the sacred tree. They they told the women they couldn't do this. So it's just, it's a huge um, systemic indoctrination. And it makes me sad 
that mm-hmm. I thought that way then, but so happy that we, you know, the three of us and all the listeners have given ourselves the permission now to go in and listen to the stories, to the heart of the story and have our own meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. One other thing I was thinking about with the, when you were talking about the, when you were both talking about the language and I recorded another episode last week and somebody was mentioning, I believe it was Carla and Dominique were talking about how in museums, oh, and you were talking about male-dominated industries. Well, as a librarian, as you know, librarianship has always been dominated by women, which is something that's changing. But museums and libraries and archives have always been sort of grouped together. And even though librarianship is dominated by women, museums and archives are not. And they were talking about how, how, and how often in museums, things that are clearly related to goddess worship are just labeled as like, you know, woman holding, you know, conch shell and snake and or girl holding blah, 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 when it's clearly a goddess depiction or a goddess worship related relic. I mean, that's how they discredited uh, Maria Gimbutas, right? So anyway, that was just another side note. So, uh, so Manette, since you mentioned it, let's talk about the last thing, right? Which was the thing that I thought most people were familiar with, which is Asherah. And Asherah is actually part of the three goddess pantheon of the Canaanite the Canaanites, right? The Canaanite religion, the Canaanite pantheon, which is what? Asherah, Astarte, and Anana. No. No? It's, hang on. You're the one that's supposed to know this. (laughs) Well, I'm not a biblical scholar, so... Astarte, um, Isis. No, no. Well, the source I'm looking at says Anana, Anat, Isis, Nut, and Astarte, and possibly, well, an Asherah. Like, I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. They interchange the, them so the, much. The three great goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon Asherah, Astarte, and Anat. Anan, yeah. Okay. That's what I have. Okay. That's from the Jewish Women's Archive. All right. So let's go with that. Okay. So these are the passages that most people today, or at least people that I've talked to, are familiar with. And But the page that I have with all the quotes doesn't say what version of the Bible these are from. Um, Lana, can you help me out? Here. Oh, well, some of them do. Jeremiah. There's a bunch from Jeremiah. Um, Kings. There's a lot in Kings and yeah, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 718. I'll just throw that out there as like a starting one. Okay. The children gather wood and the father kindles fire. The women need their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. <laughs> that whole idea that like you actually believe in a God that can be provoked to anger by baking a cake to the queen of heaven. Oh, that is so problematic. Well, and I mean, I think it's important that we recognize that script, the Bible is really the, the, the tome of monotheism. Like, right? That was its agenda. That's what you see from the Abrahamic tradition forward, right? I think once we have the story of Abraham, everything in that text is about one God. That was massively countercultural at the time, which is why we have these references to the Queen of Heaven. It's why we have, like, of course, because culturally people are like, what are you talking about? We have 
that we pray to the gods that bring the that grow the crops that help us be pregnant that bring fertility that you know like all, all of these gods and goddesses that were part of the culture um and that particular text when we put it all together is consistently saying nope just one as we've interpreted it i think there's some room in there for more but the text kind of subtext is the monotheist monotheistic god which was very countercultural at the time So in Genesis is, so Asherah, tell me if I'm wrong about this. So, so the Asherim, is that, is that the, the same thing as an ash tree, which I assume is the tree that was associated with the goddess Asherah? I don't know. Because that's the quote from Genesis, which is, which is, or I'm sorry, not from Genesis, from Exodus 34, 13, but you shall tear down and destroy their pagan altars, smash in pieces their sacred pillars, and cut down their Asherah. I'm not sure that I'm correct about this, but I believe that the Asherah that the ashram is actually an ash tree, which is associated with the goddess Asher. I could be totally wrong about that. Somebody that listens to this will correct me. <laughs> let me see if I can let me see if I can confirm that or not. It's so interesting, Monat, based on what you're saying, you know, about the ridiculousness of the wrath of of a single god about women baking cakes um you know when you again i just think this is so much about the the interpretive lens of uh, of how this text was put together constantine and you know like the whole history of what was going on at the time um th just the constant pushing out of anything that is not solely focused on this one understanding of the divine it's what you you know and i think it, i think the argument could be made that by the time we get to the new testament by the time we get to jesus we begin to see something radically different in his language in his in what he is even deconstructing in terms of the old ways of seeing things, but that's not how we've interpreted it. We've, you know, the evangelical church, even the Catholic church, right, has taken him as the physical embodiment of the one God. Now a man on earth who has embodied God. So there's even more elevation of the man, right? Like all of that gets messed up in there. But if we go back to the actual things that he did, the words that he spoke, the way that he behaved, how he treated women, uh, all of that is antithetical to what we saw in the books previous. But yes. we don't like to tell that story all that much, right? Yeah, we make Jesus fit the narrative. We totally do. Yep. The Old Testament instead of yep. saying, oh, it's a New Testament, a exactly. new, new way. Let's, let's bring some yep. new life here. Exactly, yeah. which is what I think we see in the gospel, in Mary Magdalene, right? In the gospel yeah. that was found in the, whenever that was, the 1800s or early 1900s. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it radically changes that story, but you can see the editing going on right there. Did you, either of you read, um, I just, sometimes I think fiction is such a portal. Suman mm -hmm. Kidd's Book of Longing. Loved that book. Okay. You know, I usually don't do all the lines. So, I was wrong. <laughs> so the Asherim is just, they, the Asherim were the sacred wooden posts, poles, and pillars that stood near the altars in the various Canaanite um that stood near the altars in high places 
where they worshipped Asherah. That's what the meaning of Asherim is. So I was completely wrong about the Ash. <laughs> now it was a nice good theory. Um, and something else I was going to say about what we were talking about before, Ronnie, you had mentioned the you know, the, the gospel of Jesus. I mean, there are a bunch of other Gnostic gospels as well. So even once we moved into the New Testament, there was still a whole bunch of stuff that they left out. Yeah. yeah. Right? So all of Gnosticism but, is what was left out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all of it. Yes. All the truth. Yeah. Right. <laughs> all the knowing. All which the is knowing. what that word actually means is knowing. Exactly. So anything knowing. about knowing, we can't let you have because no. that would be way too dangerous. No, that's like Eve eating the apple. No, no, oh, no. Oh my God. Let's not do that. Because <laughs> that's what that word means in Greek. Knowledge. Knowing. Yeah, knowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Asherah. What else did I want to say about Asherah? There were a couple other interesting verses yeah so the, and that the, this is in the new testament right all the asherah stuff genesis exodus deuteronomy jeremiah that's all old that's old that's yeah. all old okay then never mind I, I obviously i do not know my bible shocking i know <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, in here it's plainly obvious, but this is all the stuff about how, yes, they were smashing the idols and the altars and burning down the trees and punishing people for um, for worshipping their idols and tearing down villages. and uh, Which ironically is the very thing that Jesus does, right? Tears down, like turns over the tables in the temple and offends the religious leaders of the time telling them that they're worshiping idols in right. money in power in right like you see the mirroring in so many ways of what was happening it's just really interesting to watch how he's turning things upside down and yet we've turned them around one more time to go back to the original story which right. is too bad <laughs> Like it's radically impacted our life and our world. And, and I guess in the Old Testament, I guess it was King Solomon who had a particular affinity for some of these um, goddesses. There's this passage in Kings that says the king ruined the high places east of Jerusalem, such as the Mount of Destruction, that King Solomon of Israel had built for the detestable Sidonian goddess Astarte, the detestable Moabite goddess Shemosh, and the horrible Ammonite god Milcom. So I guess, you know, Solomon was a real polytheist and they were very displeased. Who was born of an incredible mother. Mm. Solomon's mother was amazing. And so when I think about his mother, I think no wonder he was like he was. No wonder he honored wisdom. He's the one who speaks of Sophia. He's like, there's so much wisdom from Solomon. I think because of his mom, yeah. because of a powerful woman who, who was brutally harmed in very difficult and painful ways and yet moved that through her son in ways that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then in, I think it's really sad, this passage in Jeremiah, where they talk about all the things that they're going to give up. Mm -hmm. um, the forty-four seventeen passage. Instead, we will do everything we vowed we would do. We will sacrifice and pour out our drink offerings to the goddess called the Queen of Heaven. Just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our leaders previously did in the town of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, were well off, and had no troubles. But we're going to stop doing all of that for you. I have a, there's a quote, one of my favorite quotes is by, now I can't remember her name, 
source on the tip of my tongue. Now I can't remember her name. She's a really famous witch. And uh, I'll have to come back to it later and put it in the show notes because her name is escaping me right now. But one of the best things she ever said was, she said the, the Bible was just a storybook. The Pope was just a man doing his best. And if Jesus were to come back today, he would say, you know, this really isn't what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought yeah. was fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, closing thoughts. Do you feel like we've educated our our listeners enough that the goddess does, in fact, exist in the Bible, um, sometimes disguised, sometimes not, but there is enough evidence there for those who wish to speak it. For me, I think, if I were to say one last thing, I think it's, yes, we can see the references to the goddess in the language itself. What I would say, what I do say, is that the place that we see the sacred feminine present, the power of the sacred feminine, is in the women themselves. It's, 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 it's the inhabit, it's inhabited. The fact that women survive and persevere and love and hope and give birth and do all of the things that they have always done and that we continue to do, for me, is evidence of the goddess, of the sacred, divine, of the divine feminine, of the sacred feminine. Like, how else do we do the, what we do? How else have we endured all of this persecution, all of this silencing, centuries and centuries of pushing all of this away, and yet we persist, and yet we remain? Why? That's the evidence for me of the divine. If I were going to, if I, you know, if I weren't agnostic and I were going to land the plane, I would say there's the evidence that women continue uh, in beautiful and powerful ways. So I love that it shows up in these snippets in the text in and of itself, but I will, I will fall on my sword saying that it's the fact that the women themselves exist today as well as in the past that gives us the proof. I would say that too. And Manette, I'm going to give you a chance to make okay. like a closing statement. But I just wanted to say before I forgot mine was what mine was, uh, that just kind of sailing on your coattails there a little bit, Lana. I would say that my evidence would be because you still have to acknowledge that at the end of the day, that no matter what it says, no matter which version, at the end of the day, we still have to acknowledge that even though in the most recent iterations, even in the King James Version, even in the patriarchy, Jesus became the representative of the male God who still had mother. And for me, that speaks to evidence of the goddess because for millions of years, the earliest known worship of the goddess was as the mother, right? Gaia worship is some of the earliest worship of goddess that we know of. So just the fact that Jesus had a mommy speaks to me. I would say to use the bits we kind of deconstructed and excavated today as your proof that her story is embedded. And I would like encourage everyone to give themselves a huge permission slip that if something feels goddess, divine feminine, sacred to you, that it is. Like we did, um, and Rana was in it, we did a vow of faithfulness class and we got to kind of figure out what held that for us. And mine ended up being the moon. 
It doesn't matter if anyone else thinks the moon is holy or sacred or it has a special significance to them. Like, just trust that um, connection that comes up mm -hmm. for you because it's real. Mm -hmm. Feel good. Feel good. Feel probably just from doing what you would do. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out, but then I'm not gonna just let the screen go blank because I always feel so rude when I do that. But I'm gonna do my goddess thing and then I'll stop. Okay. 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 So thank you both for coming on today. First panel, thumbs up, okay, right? We saw your panel too, but you're still a panel. Um, so until I see or speak to either of you, thank you again. And may the love and peace desire to you. And also with you. <laughs> I always do kind of wait for that. Thanks for watching The Girlfriend Guide on YouTube. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way you can support it is to like it, follow it, leave comments on the page, rate it, review it, share it with your friends. But most of all, subscribe to this channel. And if you want more of The Girlfriend God, you can find The Girlfriend God on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks again for watching.